Welcome to the show where we unearth new ways of looking at ever-evolving life around the world, seen from a number of different industries, cultures, and backgrounds. But there's one thing that unites everyone I speak to. They all want to do their part to make the world better in their own unique ways. It's a uniting passion. Whether they're from the commercial world, third sector, or public sector, from the global north or the global south, my name is Philippa White, and welcome to Thai Unearthed. Hello, and welcome to episode 76 of Thai Unearthed. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. Today, I'm speaking with Simon Rogerson, co-founder of Octopus Group, and one of the sharpest and quickest minds I've had the pleasure to meet. I last met with Simon at their Holborn offices, and I was waiting for Simon to join me. I looked on the wall and I saw a poster. It read, Other companies invest for profit. We think bigger. We make things, build things, scare the life out of complacent businesses, and shake up sectors crying out for disruption. We do this for one giant reason. We're invested in making the world a better place to live. Now, having read that, I wanted to have a podcast conversation so that I could understand more about Octopus and specifically the points in this poster. So how do they think bigger? How have they acted like a challenger brand? What are some of the examples? How do they make the world a better place to live? And how has them being a more human company fit into all of this? We talk about so much in this conversation. Simon questions the education system, explains why Octopus will never go public, and brings to life how it is possible to make money and still not only stand for something, but also make a real impact. I think you'll love listening to this as much as I did. So throw on those running shoes or grab that favorite beverage, and here's Simon. Simon, thank you so much for joining us today. I am so excited to have this conversation with you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's a pleasure. Nice to be invited. Good. Well, you've, you've just come back from holiday, I think. Am I correct? Are you probably That's feeling... Correct. Yeah. So you are looking very relaxed and... Yeah, although I was playing golf, which is the most infuriating sport in the world. So I'm not that relaxed. <laughs> but it was, I had a nice time. That's good. And where are you? Because I like to ask... I, I speak to people all over the place. So for our listeners, I think I know where you are. But yeah, if you could oh, just... I am smack bang in the middle of... At the local offices, I'm thinking. Yes, at your uh, head office. Office business, um, yeah. which is in Holborn in London, unlike our energy business, which is a mile down the road. Yeah, exactly. Actually, because I anyway, I was I ride my line bikes around London when I'm there, and I put in octopus and anyway it took me to a place that I was like this is not where I'm supposed to be and then I realized you have another office so so we're talking about octopus but I actually quite like to back up a little bit on these uh podcasts because we are not defined by what we're necessarily doing now and there's a bit of a story that led us to where we are and I just think it'd be so interesting to know a little bit more about you before octopus so yeah, how did you get into this space? What's your story? Do you, Would you like me to start? I'll just start. Um, Where so I, are, yeah. I read modern languages at university. I went to St Andrews University. Then when I and I took various holiday jobs while I was at university. I'm probably the most interesting was I was a door-to-door salesman for Betterware, household items, and that was probably the most well-paid job, which might sound quite funny given that my other work experience was 
working for Schroders in their investment banking division. But on an hourly basis, I earned a lot more working for Betterware, selling stuff door to door than I did working for an investment bank. I left. That's a, that's a good. That's a good piece of information. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I left university. Had three years in St Andrews and a year out in France in Grenoble, and then I applied for all kinds of jobs. And the one that I chose to do was to join a company called Mercury Asset Management, which at the time was one of Europe's biggest, most successful fund management companies. And that business became Merrill Lynch Investment Managers and now is part of BlackRock. They're kind of behemoth with whatever it is, six, seven trillion dollars under management now, an enormous company. And uh, when I was working at Mercury, it was a brilliant place to work in terms of you had access to any chief executive you ever wanted to speak to because they had so much money under management. And it was full of very smart, opinionated people. So a brilliant place to learn. But I uh, quickly worked out, I wasn't really cut out for a normal job. I used to look at my watch. This was on a graduate train, trainee. I used to look at my watch at the same time every single day. It would be one o'clock. I've been at work since about half past seven. And at one o'clock, I think, oh my God, is it only one o'clock? I cannot do this for the rest of my life. Even though you're sitting in front of chief executives of Microsoft or Walmart or uh, Pfizer, these really impressive individuals, but I just was so bored. So I used to look at my watch all the time and I thought, do you know what? Uh, I think maybe, maybe I should leave. Maybe I should go and do my own thing. And two colleagues who worked at Mercury as well, Guy and Chris, I used to have conversations with them about one o'clock. We'd go and get a diet coke, sit downstairs in the canteen and we'd talk about leaving and we'd talk about the kind of business we were going to build and why we were going to do it. And at the time, back in 2000, say 23 years ago, financial services was the least trusted industry in the world. And 23 years later, it is still the least trusted industry in the world. Second least trusted, funnily enough, is energy. So I kind of fell into the job I do now, which is kind of building businesses and being an entrepreneur. And I'm un- I feel unbelievably fortunate I did do, because um, I think I've learned more in the last 23 years than I would have done in 20 lifetimes working for an investment company, whether that was Mercury or BlackRock or whoever. So um, that's a bit of my my story. So now you've created Octopus. You know, what does Octopus do? Obviously, I'm sure there's been a few iterations and you've evolved. What is it that you created? What was the point of difference? Why was it created? And then perhaps you could bring us to where you're at now. I don't think we had this grand vision right at the very beginning. So right at the very beginning was about survival. You take three guys who are 23, 24 and 25 and say you're going to build a fund management company, an investment company. You're not even regulated. You don't have any money. We had to use the Yellow Pages. Yellow Pages is a phone directory. We called for nine months cold calling financial advisors to try and raise the money we need to capitalize the company. In hindsight, that knocked all kinds of sensible entitlement out of us. It was the best thing we could have done, but we really didn't know. And it took us a little while to come up with the mission and what we stood for and what we wanted to leave almost as a, as a legacy. And hopefully we'll build a business which is going to outlive all of us. That would make me feel good. But our mission is pretty simple. It's to invest in the people, the ideas and the industries that will change the world. And the weird thing for Octopus is we do that on two dimensions. We're not just investors. We have you know, probably invested about $20 billion into lots of different companies in the last 23 years. But we're also entrepreneurs. So when we see opportunities, we like to go and build businesses ourselves as well as back others. So the idea of build, seizing opportunities and being this catalyst for change is kind of embedded in the culture of the company and the people. Now, you asked, you know, what, what are the differences, I think, between Octopus and other companies? And I think every, almost every entrepreneur would say this, but we say quite genuinely, it's, the difference for us is our behaviours, so which is down to our people and our culture. That is the thing that sets Octopus apart from any other company we compete against. That's why, also why I think we've tended to win. Yeah. And there are another couple of aspects as well, which is 
everybody working in Octopus as a shareholder in the business. That's really important because I think owners behave differently to normal employees. I think that's, and I think anyone setting up their own company should think very carefully about that. And the other point is that we have a very, very long time horizon. So we don't measure our success over three months, six months, a year, two years, three years. We're not building this business to sell it. We're building it, as I said, to you know, to build something I'm proud to talk to my grandkids about. So I was part of building that company and that makes me feel good. So I just want to pick up on something because you we talked about it the last time I met with you, but I just want to point it out for the for the listeners. It's something that I was going to ask you a bit later on, but I want to pick it up now. You mentioned that the, the time horizon is longer and you you are not going to sell it. So yeah. you are not publicly owned no. and you won't ever be publicly owned. No. And, and why? Yeah. Well, because I think most companies are borderline sociopathic. They're, they're very selfish. They're very self-interested. And the reason for that is this utter fixation with the bottom line and profitability. And yeah. that makes them selfish organizations. It means they don't think about their broader stakeholders. And so I, I don't want to build a business like that because that wouldn't make me proud. The second point about, uh, about it is I don't want to be a public company because I think that ties at least one of my hands behind my back. You can't imagine a publicly listed investment company turning around to its shells and saying, uh, guys, I've got a really good idea. We're going to build an energy company. How about it? They, they would look at me like I had, like I was a bit odd. Well, I might be a bit odd, but they, but they, they wouldn't allow that. And I don't think, that, and that's not the kind of company I want to build. The, the Octopus Group has special needs schools within it. It has an energy company within it. It has technology businesses within it. It has an investment company. It does all kinds of things, and it will continue to do that because I love building businesses and I love trying to put things right, which are obviously wrong in society. And I don't think the public market gives you that flexibility. I don't think it gives you the timeline and wants you to measure your success, which is appropriate. You you should measure success over decades and over lifetimes, not over three months or six months or 12 months. That is, I think, a nonsense. And I think the way capital is allocated in the market is inherently wrong um, and drives all kinds of the wrong behaviors. Amazing. You've mentioned so many different areas that octopus work in. I remember when I first talked to you many years ago, and I remember it was defined sort of more around, I think it was health, energy, and it was old people's homes. Do you have particular markets that you go into that define octopus? We have three themes, and those three themes sit under a broader thing, which is kind of future generations. If you're thinking about the the world you're going to leave behind, and you will... Okay, that's what I want to understand. ...or legacy as a business, the stuff we all should hopefully think about, and we want to leave our mark on the world. Hopefully everyone wants to see that. And for us, it's about uh, empowering people is the first theme. Revitalizing healthcare is the second theme, and building a sustainable planet is the third. And they're very broad themes, but they're all... Uh, fundamental to some of the problems going on in society today and yeah. that's the kind of thing that motivates us and gets out of bed and also where we think we'll happen to make the best returns when and i'll maybe talk, we'll maybe yeah. talk a bit later it, it's not a trade-off i think far from it in fact yeah amazing one of the reasons why i was really wanting to talk to you is because i feel there's a lot of people who feel it's sort of an either or it's kind of okay we can make you know we can make a difference we can do good or we can make money likewise Either we put profit first and people second or profit first and the world second. But, you know, we're a business. We have to make money. We have to make money. And that's kind of the main focus. What I'm wanting to do with these podcasts and with my book and with these conversations is to try and show the world that it doesn't have to be like that. And it can be a win-win. You can you can make a profit. You can make money. But also you can do that while making the world a better place. So with that in mind, you know, 
why is being human centric important from your point of view? And what does it mean to you? Like, what is that ROI? I, there's one lesson in 23 years of uh, running Octopus. Someone said, what's the biggest lesson you've learned? If I was talking to my kids, I'd say, look, there's one lesson that everyone should remember, whether they're running a business, in a business, thinking about setting up a business. Great business is simply about how you make people feel. That is it, right? And that applies as much to your employees as it does to your customers. And what I get frustrated by is, is sitting in board meetings of other people's companies, listening to them talk about what their strategy is. And their strategy normally involves outsmarting, outpricing, outmaneuvering, outsomething the competition. No one sits around that board table talking about, actually, do you think we could outbehave the competition? Right? And, and that is the point. Right? You can outbehave is not a word, it should be, but you can absolutely outbehave the competition. And that's fundamental to good business because that's the stuff you remember. So if I said to you, right, tell me about a company you love being a customer of. Yeah, imagine that companies were people. So personify them and say, would you be friends with all, you know, you will have interacted okay. with hundreds of companies from having a shower, brushing your teeth, to walking around to whatever, hundreds of companies. They're all instantly forgettable because they don't have a personality and they don't stand out. and They don't really mean anything. And that for me is the acid test in all of this, which comes from behavior. So, you know, what does it mean? It means you do the right thing, even when no one's watching. It means you have a personality and you stand for something, which means you attract like-minded people. And similarly, people who don't share your values and your purpose don't want to do business with you, which is okay. And for me, that's, that's fundamental to everything you're trying to do around human-centric. And, and that requires massive storytelling. And because storytelling is the bit that people remember, that catalyzes change. People then change their own behavior. They tell other people, et cetera, et cetera. Now, you mentioned one question, which is the ROI. So what's yeah. the return on investment of being a human-centric business and how you should think about things? For me, it's non-negotiable. So irrespective of what the financial return is, this is the kind of business I'm going to build and I want to build because it makes me proud. And, I, and I'd like Octopus to be a company that people would choose to be friends with. And that's fundamental. Otherwise, when I hang my boots up, I'll look back and go, well, I might have made a ton of money. But what good is that if I haven't actually built something that's lasting and I'm proud of? So that's yeah. fundamental to me. Now, the nice coincidence is if I talk to one of my three children and I say to them, come on, tell me, what kind of company do you want to work for? They, they won't say these words, but they'll tell me that they want to work for a good company, good in inverted commas. They instinctively yeah. know what a good company is because of how it behaves. And the world's so transparent now because of technology, because of social media, you can see straight through a company. All the walls they used to build around themselves, they've all been ripped down. I can see straight through you, not just what you do, but how you do it. So the good companies are there for everyone to see, and that's increasingly the case. They are the companies that will build massive loyalty, and that massive loyalty will, will be with employees, and the massive loyalty be, will be with customers. And that is what creates real, genuine, sustainable, eye-watering value. So if someone tells me it's a trade-off, behavior is a trade-off for a bottom line, you fundamentally do not understand. You've never run a business, you, or you've never run your own business. You've never seen firsthand. You know, you don't get paid if you don't have any customers. I know that because we didn't have any for quite a long time. So you understand this firsthand, right? I know I am utterly convinced that I'm right and that the world will, will, will get there. Yeah. And, and this power now that sits in that rightly sits in the hands of the consumer and the employee, totally. they have this broadcast mechanism to be able to tell the world how you are behaving. That's a good thing, right? It used yeah. to happen in the Middle Ages when, when all your business was local. If you did something bad, the whole village would know and you wouldn't do any more business. And then the Industrial Revolution comes along and the morality of business declines the further it gets from its customers, disaster. And now suddenly you have this technology that allows you to tell the world 
what and how someone has behaved and that someone could be a company or a person. Yeah, super inspirational. So you're obviously, you know, it's about challenging the status quo. I don't believe that right now everyone thinks like you at all. I mean, and, and this is actually what my book is about. My book is, you know, return on humanity. And it's talking about the in so many sectors and areas and countries and places around the world, like life and business and everything is just so much better when we think like this. But unfortunately, not enough people think like that. You're about challenging the status quo, I am too. But we obviously come about it from different points of view. We help create leaders to challenge the system and realize that they can be the change. You created Octopus to be a challenger brand. And I'm just wondering, everything that you just talked about, can you tell us some stories you, t- you said that you like stories. Can you tell us a story that brings this to life in in a way that the listeners would enjoy? Okay, uh, um, hopefully I'll tell you two stories, um, Love it. which uh, will hopefully reflect two aspects of our culture. That if you want to create change and you want to be disruptive, they're both important. And one is around risk taking, and one is around behaviour. Uh, nice. And I, I don't think you can teach either of them, actually. You can put things in that encourage risk-taking, but behaviour is very difficult to teach. People have been brought up a certain way or they haven't. It's just you instinctively do the right thing. Hopefully it will come. The first one about risk-taking. We moved into our new office, the one we've been to in the middle of London, which is our first proper office. It's a really nice office. Uh, and it's nice definitely job. the octopus personality thrown through. And the guy that ran Boston Consulting Group at the time, a guy called Stuart Whitman, that ran it in Europe, I had heard we'd moved office and he came in and said, look, would you mind if I came to see it? Because I heard it's really nice. So I said, no, no, sure, come in. And I showed him around. And while I was showing him around, I said, look, we're thinking about doing something in the energy space. Do you know anyone I could talk to who might be interested in building an energy company? And he introduced me to these two people and they were absolutely not right as entrepreneurs or for Octopus. And I said, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. do you have any others? And he said, well, there's one guy you might want to meet. He's a bit renegade, a bit different. And that was when I met Greg Jackson. And Greg Jackson is the founder and the chief executive of Octopus Energy. He is the person, and he and his team have built that business. It has our brand, yes, but he has built that business into the giant it is today with almost 6 million customers in the UK, tens of millions of customers across 12 different countries, all done in about eight years. And five minutes into that meeting when Greg said, I really want to build this business, and I'd like to do it, and I'd like to do it in a way that really looks after customers and puts them first, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I was like, fantastic you should absolutely go and do it we'll back you get on with that right that is and there was no i should say it quietly there's no great big paper looking at the opportunities saying should we do it there was no massive committee meeting and everything else and at one point we had about 155 million pounds of our balance sheet invested in that business when it was in its very early stages now it's raised an awful lot of money one and a half billion dollars i think is now a really really big company but that's the risk taking and that's based off you meeting a human who I thought was exceptional, and I, uh, and he still is the single most impressive entrepreneur I've ever worked with by orders of magnitude. He's a total freak. And you can tell that about someone really, really quickly, if you're a, hopefully if you're a good judge of character, because I've met thousands of people. I used to interview every single person we ever hired to. There were about four or 500 people in size. And you can see that it just bleeds energy all over the table. And, he's, and So that's one element, which is about yeah. risk-taking and being yeah. prepared to back your judgment and not be afraid of getting things wrong. The second one is about behaviors where you can't, a company that every single company you ever read about will say they really care about customers and they do the right thing. And our own experience of dealing with companies is that's just absolutely not true. You know, yeah. If my bank really cared about me, they wouldn't make me wait 40 minutes while I decline a transaction that I've done 10 times in the last 10 months and they're just randomly doing it for my own benefit. I mean, 
and, and this was a, a conversation with a guy who called our, our, one of our customer service team. And uh, the guy in question, I think it was about 25, 26 at the time, this guy called up and said, I'm really interested in one of your investment products. And so the guy explained it on the phone and said, look, would you like me to send you some information? Based? And he said, well, you, should, you know, don't do that because there's no point because I'm blind. So unless you have them in Braille, that doesn't help me. And at the time, and I, and I still think today, to be fair, I don't have them in Braille. Uh, we didn't have them. We said, oh, I'm really sorry then. But if you have any other further questions, give us a call back and I'll be happy to talk you through it. And then this guy, this was, I think, on a Thursday. And what the guy then did, he went home. He didn't, he didn't talk to anyone about this. Uh, so he went weird. home and he, he recorded himself reading out the entire brochure, oh, including wow. the terms and conditions. This brochure was 32 pages long. And it took him hours and hours and hours to read all the terms and conditions that you have to have in a financial services product, clearly. And then he put them in the post to this guy, he called him up and said, look, we didn't have a Braille version, but I put it in the post. If you, if you open it and put them in an order, it's me reading them. I'm not, I've, he said, I'm, I'm not got a great voice, but, but all the information is there. And I found out about this because the guy in question, the blind guy, called me up the following Friday and said, I need to speak to the chief executive. And I spoke to him and said, I just want to tell you what's happened. No one knew. No one knew with an ops. No one knew. He didn't right. say it. No one did because he just did this because he thought it was the right thing to do. Right. That to me that is a is story amazing. that tells you everything you need to know about Octopus and, and how we behave and what we do and what's important to us. And totally. clearly we don't always get things right, but nobody does. But, um, but it's stories like that that I think actually resonate and mean something. That you totally. create a culture which, because of, because it, culture exists on its own, and it's the people you hire, and it's who you put in there, it's who you reward, it's who you promote, it's all this kind of stuff. You think, oh my God, that's really cool. So I like that. That is so cool. I love that. Because I think the other thing when it comes to customer service, when it comes to culture and companies, people need to feel empowered. And what's so crazy is he felt, not only did he take the initiative to do something, but he felt empowered enough to do that without telling anyone that he was doing that and sitting along and also was so self-aware that he didn't feel he needed to tell people to, you know, because he was hoping to get something from that. That was just his inner development of, you know, this is the right thing to do and just does it. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's amazing. That is such a great story. Mm -hmm. So how do you make the world a better place to live? Like what to you, Simon Rogerson, what does a better world look like to you? Uh, and this is why I think entrepreneurs are in such a privileged position because I think entrepreneurs are the true agents of change in society. And I think that's fundamental. And uh, so you think about, you know, lots of people talk about is it government's role, is it charity's role? And yet governments are there to kind of help pump prime, and help catalyze stuff. And charities are there to help normally in areas where business can't operate or don't want to operate. But actually, the, the biggest opportunity is for business, for business to fix society and to solve some of the problems that, that exist today. It's the role of business. And, and that's where all the capital is, uh, all the money is, all the human capital and brain power. And, and the really big opportunity in this is I think that humans have this instinctive need to belong to something. Well, we've always needed that from when we first existed, right? We want to belong to something. And the traditional organizations we used to belong to, whether that's our country, whether it's a, whether it's a, a family, whether it's the church, they just don't have the same sense of belonging anymore. So, you know, the church isn't the same sanctuary for as many people. The, the family, just because of globalization, divorce rates and everything else, doesn't offer the same kind of level of comfort that it used to. 
uh, and uh, countries are increasingly isolated or insular and, and we don't trust politicians anymore. And well, so it's a mess. And actually, the organisations that should come to the rescue are companies because companies can put these things right if they chose to. And I, I think the obligation is as much on the on the company and the leader to say, this is what I'm going to do, as it is on the employee to say, you need to go out and find an organisation which has a genuine purpose that you share and genuine yeah. values that you also share. And if you're working for a company that doesn't have both those things, you should get up tomorrow morning, resign, and go and find one that does. Because you're going to spend the majority of your life working for a company, so you may as well find one that's actually going to make a positive impact where you can be part of something. Because when yeah. you're part of something, it makes you feel really good because there's a bigger purpose yeah. and, a, and a reason to get up in the morning. And that, for me, is just fundamentalist, how humans are wired. So if you give people this sense of purpose, which is a, you know, be way beyond that, that you're all part of something, going in the same direction, arms around each other, that's really exciting. And yeah. companies are uniquely placed to do that. And we have you know, um, this enormous obligation above and beyond a normal company, because not only do we build companies ourselves, but we have almost $20 billion of other people's money. So uh, being an investment company, you have super capital, enormous amounts of capital to deploy at solving some of these problems. And therefore, the ability to be a real catalyst for change and telling stories, whether it's in one of these three sectors, say, we did this, here's what happened. Oh, my goodness, wasn't that cool? You should do the same thing yourself. I think about it like that. I think companies are fundamental. So how do you then keep challenging your own business and continue to challenge the system? I have lots of energy. I'm pretty relentless and I, and I like building. I like building things. So one of the first things we decided when we started building these new businesses within the group is don't build them within the mothership. So all the new businesses we build, almost all the new businesses we build, are built outside the mothership. Geographically, they, they work out different locations. And, and my job is almost a bit like Gandalf, which is you shall not pass. So the, the new startup company can ask for whatever it wants from the mothership and will get it. But the mothership isn't allowed to interfere the other way. Because when you have an established, regulated big business, there are all kinds of processes, rightly, processes of governance, sometimes bureaucracy, that are in place, which would yeah. strangle life out of a startup. So you've got to want to take risk and then you've got to protect those new entities that are allowed to run at their own speed. So I'd say that's the first point. The yeah. second point is it comes down to the people you hire. So you, you'll create an entrepreneurial culture and a risk-taking culture if you hire the right kind of people. But those yeah. people need to be really comfortable in their own skin. They need to be really human. They need to be uh, vulnerable. They need to be open. They need to be, you know, good, good, fundamentally good people. So it's as much about the interview questions you ask. You can't ask yeah. people bold standard interview questions because you don't learn anything um, because smart people can answer those questions. You need to think about slightly different questions that will tell you who's really sitting opposite you. Because you can train competence, you, you can't train warmth and values and behaviours. It's just in somebody or it's not, I think. And I, and I, and I just have to pick up on that because the story that you told me when we, when we last met up, which I loved, it stuck in my head because I just found it so interesting how you asked somebody what makes them vulnerable or what was a time that they felt vulnerable it's a particularly nasty question, but I'll, I'll say something. Tell, tell me something about you that makes you vulnerable yeah. that you wouldn't normally share in an interview, right? And, and you get one of three answers to that question. The first answer is some people are not prepared to answer the question. That's okay, but you can't work out. Um, so that's a quick interview. The, the second people are people that make something up and they say, well, uh, sometimes I'm a bit too much of a perfectionist or sometimes I work a bit hard. I'm like, oh, come on, you can do better than that. 
And then the third group of the people that actually answer it and they're comfortable enough from their own skin to say, do you know what, um, here's, here's me. And, and, and do you know what, I'm, I'm sick of carrying this big shield around that, yeah. that, that hides all my supposed weaknesses from the rest of the world. And it's just me and that's who I am and it's okay. If I'm working on a team with nice people, they'll help me and, and they'll want me, me to become better and the company to become better. When they're not able to be open and vulnerable, they see vulnerability as a weakness. You are literally crazy because vulnerability is a massive strength it's because it's what makes you human. And everyone has vulnerability and it's just building that connection, that relationship in a way that allows you to share it. And then it becomes super freeing. And it, without totally. Um, totally. And, it, and it's so interesting because, I mean, I, t I have a section in my book where I'm talking about this because we live it all the time with our work. And it's fascinating because we work with really senior individuals who are so used to being in control and running teams and having groups of people who look up to them. And then they find themselves in a situation like on Thai where they're having to understand a local situation in a completely different place. And they have to be vulnerable to be able to understand what that place is going through. And they can't know the answers because it would be insane to think that they did know the answers yeah. about a place in Ghana that they've never been to before in a group with a yeah. group of people, you know. And we have so many different exercises and training and all this kind of stuff, but it's, you know, to try and break down those barriers, but inevitably it's, you know, it, it gets two weeks, three weeks into the process and they're saying, yeah, we still haven't unlocked this thinking. I'm like, okay, but have you spoken to the local people and have you said that you don't know what the answers are? And they're like, yeah, I guess that would really help, wouldn't it? <laughs> it's like, yes. And then they have the conversation and then suddenly it's like training wheels are off the bike and they're, like going for it. I'm like, God, you know, it's just fascinating. And at the end, it's um, every single time these individuals say, wow, I really, you know, it was kind of arrogant of me to think that I knew, you know, that I could do this without them or God, it really makes a difference when you ask questions and, and are willing to listen to the answers. And, and mm -hmm. it seems so kind of back to basics a little bit, but it's amazing how we get stuck in these ways of thinking. And yeah, it's just like letting those you know about those walls down and it, it is it's a it's a superpower actually and yeah well, i think unfortunately i think it's wired into us from a very early age i mean the education system is at the heart of so many of the problems we have in society genuinely uh, about the point that somebody's right that there's a natural hierarchy and then there's only one answer and it's just it's just a education is a so talk, so talk to us about that, because that's actually something I really do want to understand. You talked about that the last time, and I really, we didn't have time because I was having to rush off to another meeting, but I really wanted to push that. So can you can you talk to us? I mean, what what is it that, in your mind, doesn't work when it comes to the education system? I think almost everything, actually, if I'm being really done, you know, I think about what I learned when I was at school or even university, actually, and I think about what my children are learning. So, you know, what happens to potassium when you put it in hydrochloric acid or, or when was the battle of 1066? Or can you explain what a drumlin is or an interlocking spur? Uh, but do you know what? We're going to pass on what happens when someone dies or relationships or, or nutrition or physical health or mental health or uh, entrepreneurship or vulnerability. What, what, those are life things. And, and when they happen to you, when somebody in your family dies, when you're 45, you'll be like, it's the first time it's happened to any human ever. You have to go through that experience like no one's ever done it. In reality, 5 billion people have been through that experience or 10 billion, whatever the number is. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole bunch of stuff you can understand and learn. And, and schools should have a role in doing this. They should explain life events. They should explain mental health, physical health, all the things. I know they have elements of this and they touch on it, but the weighting is so horribly, horribly wrong. 
Because again, just like you define a business by its bottom line, you define a school by how many A stars its children get in exams, which is about learning. It's not about necessarily understanding. It's definitely not about application. It's about can you create a machine that you put children through where you will make them learn and learn and learn and learn and they'll regurgitate it and then they'll forget it. And this doesn't stay with you and it doesn't set you up to be successful as a person, as a business person, as a husband, a wife, a girlfriend, a boyfriend, a whatever, a successful human. People are so, people are financially illiterate, most of them, certainly in the UK. Money is the number one cause of mental health problems in the UK by miles. Drives some people to the ultimate, to suicide because they're not on top of it and they don't understand it. And, you know, the companies operating in that sector almost enjoy the fact that there's this big gap between them in terms of knowledge and the end customer, and they exploit it. That's terrible. Someone should put that right. So I think schools genuinely, and they squash creativity, they squash imagination. You're encouraged to believe the teacher's right and everyone else is right, and there's only one way of viewing the world. I just think it's an absolute nonsense. How does that then translate into future business leaders? From the point of view of what we're talking about and the importance of driving these businesses in the direction that they need to go in, what is missing from the point of view of the education system to create these leaders? Well, do you know what? So when I was at, when I was at school, secondary school, I did something called Young Enterprise. Price. Young Enterprise. Yeah. And Young Enterprise Young Enterprise may well still exist, actually. I mean, it's been a while, 32 years or something. But when I was 16, I, would, I did Young Enterprise. And this was uh, with school arts going out with a local girls' school, and you got a group of people together, and you said, what kind of business are we going to create? And, and the person was doing this of their own free time, and he was a really nice, kind man, but uh, and no, not being disparaging to accountants, but he was an accountant. He never built a business. He was just trying to help young people, and it's really nice that he did that, but he'd not been there and done it as an entrepreneur. So, And, it, and actually, I think I lasted two sessions, <laughs> then I got asked to leave the group <laughs> because I wasn't agreeing with very many people about what we should do. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't good. But, I, but schools have a, I think they have a responsibility to educate people more broadly than just the academic side of things. But, you know, I, I'm not to say I've given up on it. It's very difficult. We have a special needs school business, I have 15 special needs schools within the Octopus Group because I think education is broken. I'd love to fix it. But that has a very deep impact on a relatively small number of families about 1,500 children and their families are impacted by the 15 schools we run. And they're amazing schools, but it's a very small, it's a very particular um, opportunity and a very particular problem in society that we're trying to fix. Broader education is much, much bigger. So if I think about what we've done as Octopus, because I don't think we can fix education, certainly not at the moment, is we've said, do you know what? I want, to enc- I want, I want Octopus to become an army of entrepreneurs. And so yeah. I want to encourage as many people working here to set up on their own and do their own thing. So we do something that people think is really weird. If you work at Octopus and you've got your own idea, you pitch it, and if we think it's a decent idea, we'll give you the money. And we'll give you 30, 40, 50,000 pounds, and we'll tell you to go and set your own business up and see if you can make it work. And if you can, amazing. Go off and build this really cool company, employ lots of people, live a life that'll be incredible in terms of what you learn. But if it doesn't work, um, six, nine months later, we'll keep your job open, and you can just come back and work for us again. Because I know you'll be way more useful to us having tried and failed never having tried at oh, all so, good. so that yeah. for me is a way of trying to catalyze change because I, d- I could we could talk about education all day it's i think it's broken and it's going to take yeah. someone who can influence government actually in a yeah. way that i don't think octopus can certainly not in the in the medium term this thing about failure as well i think you know what is failure you know i was talking to a group of people from a from a bank actually that was involved with one of our programs and 
had a number of people that were looking to apply and they, one individual said, so what have you done when a, or has any of your programs ever failed? And uh, he was the head of risk, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and I said, okay, but I don't know, like what is failure? I, 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 it's not, I don't think humans actually fear failure. What they actually fear is embarrassment. And that is born out of the same education process. Yeah. of getting a crap grade and being stuck in a wall and coming bottom or having a piece of paper covered in red and getting an F in a big circle at the top of the thing. It's the embarrassment, not actually the failure. You look at little little children, little children don't mind failing at all. They, they, they just keep trying again and again and again. Yeah. And as we get older, we're encouraged to feel like we've failed. We're judged. And so we stop taking risk and we box ourselves into these tiny, tiny little things. Exactly. Children are inherently optimistic. They think amazing things are going to happen all the time. And adults don't other than a very small number of nutty entrepreneurs who retain yeah. this kind of child-like sense of optimism. In the, so you look at Musk. Musk has designed a car that looks like a little kid's drawn it, and, and it's bulletproof, and, and he's going to build a rocket, and he's going to send people to Mars. You can't imagine that. Most humans wouldn't, but he has, and, and certain entrepreneurs retain that, and that's addictive, yeah. and, and I want to follow that because it's exciting, and it's different, and it means something. And that's the problem in education. It gets squashed out of people. Yeah. All children meet a bunch of, go in a, go in a room of five or six-year-olds and ask them to be imaginative. And then what do we do? They'll come up with all kinds of stuff. Amazing. Yeah. And then go and ask a bunch of adults and you, it'd be pretty boring pretty quickly. It's, it's interesting because I think it comes down to resilience, you know? Yeah. And I, and, I, and I think, you know, how do you teach resilience? And how do you... That's a good question. Right? You, I think you experience it. Exactly. Uh, you, I, I think it's one of these things like until you've actually experienced it, um, you, you, it's difficult to talk about because it's one of these slightly weird concepts. Resilience is just recognize. I mean, you know, that's optimism again. O o optimism yeah. comes out of resilience. Nelson Mandela, about the most resilient individual you can think, think of. Right. And he kept believing. Optimism isn't about blind optimism. It's not about believing that everything's going to be tickety boo and that's all great. It's about recognizing that you can change things for the better. And along the way, there are going to be all kinds of pitfalls and nightmares that you're going to have to get over. But that's just, you don't lose the belief. Keep believing. And that's inherent in entrepreneurs. Because if you gave up easily, or you believe what people told you, if entrepreneurship was a disease, it would be the most feared disease in the world. Because 99% of people that do it die. Uh, and, and, and people keep coming back for it more and more and more. Because it is, it's the side of it. It's that side. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So... I mean, there's a couple of things that I want to touch on just from what you've been talking about. One is, you know, you now employ a lot of people at Octopus. You've, you've grown quite a bit since you started mm -hmm. 23 years ago. Is there an Octopus quality that you tend to look out for? Yeah, I'd say the two, uh, probably two things. So one is uh, when we try to work out who our best performers are and what makes them our best performers, the number one factor, the number one, bigger than anything else is how busy a life they've chosen to lead. That is the number one factor determining whether someone's really successful or octopus. So when you, when you get someone to come in for an interview and you ask them, so what do you do in your spare time? If they tell you they watch box series on Netflix, your chances are they're not leading a very busy life. doesn't matter what they do. They're knitting, cooking, ultramarathons, playing the guitar, singing, traveling. These people are they're just naturally busy people. They have lots of energy, massive surplus of energy versus everything. So they just apply themselves uh, in a, in a way that's um, really effective. And I, I, there's lots of conversation about work-life balance, which I find extremely annoying. 
Because I think if you've got a problem with work-life balance, you just need to find a job you love, and then it won't seem like work. But back to that same thing again. If it's, if it's so painful to go to work, and you can only work between these hours and never at the weekend and never when you're on holiday, you're in the wrong job. You need to go and find a job you love, and then it won't seem like hard work, and you will live longer because you enjoy it. And then the second point we look for in everyone we ever hire is the how is always more important, more important than the what. And the how is values and behaviors, and the why is competence. You can train competence, you can't train values and behaviors. So the how is, is how we assess everyone at but you get assessed on both dimensions. They're equally important, how you get paid, whether you get promoted. You can't lead any part of the organization if you don't have, if you're not really good at the how, because you just won't build the kind of company that people want to be friends with. You have talked a lot about being a champion of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurialism. When you've got so many people at Octopus, is there a risk that you sort of start stifling that that entrepreneurial um, energy? You know, how do you develop the right um, competencies and that energy when you've just got so many people to to worry about? Don't have them all in one building. Disaster. So when you do new stuff, even if it's within the same business, try and take a tiny little group of people and put them outside because it gives them freedom and flexibility they don't have when they sit. Because it's much it's much easier to default into normal. I would say, well, okay, I'll just do the I'll do the new stuff when I've got time to do it, which is at the yeah. weekend or in the evenings as opposed to no, 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 go and focus on it entirely. And then there's another bit about communicating when we get stuff wrong. So when we get stuff wrong and we go, oh, we launched that, it's not worked, and we got that bit wrong, you want to be as vocal about that as you are about the stuff that you get right. And that does work, almost more so. To say to the people, look, there's one guy actually who works in our new business, which just launched Octopus Money. And he's now worked in five, he's walked in five different startups, either as products or businesses within Octopus. And I think the first, at least three of the first four or five he did failed. Uh, he's a very talented individual. He didn't fail because he messed them up. He was one of the people in the team. And he just becomes ever more useful every time. Yeah. So it's recognizing within that when you get something wrong, genuinely, it really doesn't matter. You'll have learned. And it's, that's why when you, when you take an entrepreneur and you say to an entrepreneur, like, if you do that, this might happen. So many people have told me this. And I go, eh, really? But anyway, and then even worse than that, I'll then do it again because I think, well, maybe there's a reason I got that wrong last time. I'll do the same thing again. I, it has to go wrong twice or three times for me to go, no, that's probably, I should probably have listened yeah. to them. Because people want to experience it for themselves. So I think, uh, you know, you, you, you build new businesses outside the mothership. You do things like our springboard program to encourage people to take risks. And then how you communicate and communicating with the company openly. Guys, we've really messed this up. And here's what went wrong. There's a whole bunch of learning in that. It means people will go almost like they're experiencing it for the first time. And they're like, and that's less like it means. And, and there's not the same stigma attached to it. You know, yeah. I, and, and then other things, you know, I work in, you know, I, I work in the reception here. So I don't have my own desk. I work in reception, yeah, so people yeah. won't feel nervous coming to talk to me, and therefore I'm a bit more accessible, and I can also be a bit nosy and see what's going on. Again, it's back to these values, and I think this is what's so important. There's a it's trust, right? It's yeah. the trusting that people are yeah. gonna you trust them, you trust their judgment. Yeah. They feel trusted, so they feel supported. They don't feel like they're yeah. gonna get fired if they make the yeah. wrong decision. Um, and that's also fundamental, isn't it? To, again, and it comes back to that example of that individual who went home and recorded the entire pamphlet. It's he felt completely empowered, trusted to just make the right decisions. And I think 
when you can do that and create that kind of environment at a company, and, and obviously people's purpose is linked up to the purpose of the company, again, it's a superpower. What keeps you awake at night? Uh, insomnia. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't sleep very well. But not that it seems to make me tired. I just don't sleep very long. You know. Um, but I don't lie in bed. When I, I mean, literally for 10, 15 years, I don't lie in bed worrying about Octopus. Uh, I, you know, we've got five, 6,000 people employed across the group. I don't, some people think you might wake up thinking, oh my goodness, how do you pay their wages? There's all this responsibility. I don't feel, I feel responsible, um, but, but it doesn't worry me. I wake up at night because I've got things I'm thinking about and ideas and, and my brain doesn't stop. And, you know, for people thinking about setting their own company up, you know, I love my three children to bits. Octopus comes a very close second to how I think about my children. And it's yeah, of course. Connection and meaning. And, and that means that you think about it all the time. And that's not, I love it. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I don't stress. I just have uh, lots of ideas. ideas. Yeah, just words constantly. Clunks, I should say, not words, clunks. Octopus is a very well-known company as an energy supplier, Octopus Energy, yeah. which obviously everyone in the UK certainly will know about. But does this in any way sort of inhibit the growth and perception of the other parts of the business? No, I think it's good fun. I mean, I love it. When I stand up and, and someone and I say, look, I work for I work for Octopus, which normally said, what do you do? I say, I work for Octopus. They go, oh, the energy company. <laughs> that always makes me smile because it's amazing. I mean, in 2014, I stood up at an offsite and I said, we had 50,000 customers at the time. I said, look, our mission should be to get Octopus in every home in the UK. Uh, you said that to me. I remember you saying that. 23 yeah. million homes in the UK. So I was like, that's our mission. Because not only, not just the numerical target, but also what it means to be accepted in someone's home is a big deal because the bar's yeah. very high to make that happen. And again, everyone, when we said that, thought, well, that's a bit crazy. We only, we've got 50,000 customers. We're growing at 5,000 a year. How are we going to do that? And then in 2016, we set up Octopus Energy and fast forward how many years that is, seven years. We, right. We've got across the road 6 million customers. Everyone knows who we are. That oh. makes me proud um, that we've done that. Uh, I think because of the Octopus Energy brand and what it stands for and how it behaves, it's just a massive halo. So when Octopus goes into a sector, whether that's special needs schools, whether it's technology, whether it's financial services, whether it's money, people have an expectation about how Octopus is going to behave, and that's normally a very good one. And oh. so I think it's a halo, and I, and I think that's good, and it's fun, and it's uh, exciting. And I like doing things in multiple sectors because uh, it keeps us busy, and there are lots of problems to try and solve. Totally. Oh, is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to tell our listeners? We have come to the end. It so might much. be just because I feel like I'm getting older. I'm, so I'm 49 next month. And, and I, no one ever talks about this stuff. Well, maybe they do, but you have to get to this age first. I think life is, in the grand scheme of things, life is over in the blink of an eye. And I think lots of people, when they get to the end, probably look back with regrets. They probably won't regret what they have done they'll probably regret what they didn't do. So when I talk to people and they say, oh, I'm thinking about setting up my own business, and I say, well, why don't you do it then? And they say, well, I just haven't quite got the idea. That's just an excuse. It's never about the idea. You can steal someone else's idea. You just need to execute it better. So for me, this whole thing, life is too short to compromise on any aspect of your life, whether that's your relationship, whether it's who you work for, whether it's whether you do your own thing or do someone else's thing, just be brave, be bold. You will not regret it. Um, but I think you get one shot and you tr should try and make it count. Oh, what an amazing way to end this podcast. I couldn't agree more. Simon, thank you so much for your time. You are a very busy person, so I really appreciate it. And thank you for sharing all of these pearls of wisdom with all of our listeners. 
My pleasure. All right. Very nice. Thank you for that. Take care. Thanks. Hey, everyone. This is Philippa again. I hope you enjoyed listening. Now, this is your chance to get involved with Thai. If you work in the commercial world, whatever your profession, your position, or your experience, then Thai could be for you. You may have been in business for decades, but have always felt there's another way. Or you may just have a few years experience, but want to do more. Equally, if you want to create game-changing employees and see your company impact the world, we've got you covered. Thai has never been more necessary than right now, and you can be a part of it. Reach out to me at philippa at theinternationalexchange.co.uk and I can tell you more. Or join the Thai Accelerator info session for more information. Apply.thaiaccelerator.com. Better leaders, better companies, better world. I'm your host, Philippa White. This podcast has been co-produced by Berna Vieira and me. Music by Berna Vieira and artwork by Kelps Fahais. I hope we'll meet again soon.